Okay. Uh, all right. So here's kind of what I want to do. Not just because uh, there are a handful of people who weren't here last week, but just because I think it'll be helpful for all of us here. Just to set uh, the big big picture again. So before we did anything, we talked about the place of Isaiah in um, the sweep of the Old Testament story, and I just realized uh, I forgot to bring up my little historical outline. So let's first kind of uh, recap where we were uh, for the key storyline of the Old Testament. So kind of what I set out last week was, I think, when I try to think and summarize the story of the Old Testament in my mind, uh, the biggest repeating theme throughout all of the books is God's covenants, right? So God's engaging a world that's been compromised horribly and, and humans who have been compromised by sin and selfishness. That's the framework. God makes a good world, gives it to the image-bearing humans, and we mess everything up. And the rest of the Bible is God working out a solution to that problem. And so the way he's doing that is through these covenant relationships. He enters uh, with uh, a certain family, the family of Abraham. And so uh, we talked about Genesis chapter 12, that God's uh, purpose in choosing one family was to bring salvation and blessing to all families. And so it's through the family of Abraham that God's going to work out his plan. And that's the logic of the whole storyline of the Bible. That's why three-quarters of the Bible is about God and Israel. You know? So what's funny is the way we often retell the story of the Bible, we go like creation, humans fall, and then Jesus. You know what I mean? So we just like skip the whole Old Testament or whatever. And so that's fine if we want to do that, but let's not claim that we're actually retelling the story of the Bible when we do that. Because God has seen fit to... Uh, have the majority of what he's showing us and his character be revealed in his story with the people of Israel. And so, uh, that, and he's doing, it through, he's doing it through this family. But the goal of choosing one family is not just because he likes Israelites more than anybody else. If, if anything, the Israelites actually have a more difficult time than any humans on the planet <laughs> because they've been selected as God's co- covenant people, right? Because they constantly rebel and they constantly get the hammer for it, you know? So, so that's... Genesis chapter 12. Uh, the covenant with Israel at Sinai was a different kind of relationship. Remember, because did God say to Abraham, if you obey all my commands, then the nations will be blessed through you? Was that the logic of his promise to Abraham? No, it was just straight up. I'm here I am. I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna do, I'm just gonna do this. And actually, here, let me, before I do anything else, we'll just uh, read Read the verses here. So now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country, from your kindred and your father's house, to the land that I'll show you. I'll make you a great nation. I'll bless you. Make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you. Whoever dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So this is one of those lightning rod texts that's giving you a clue into the storyline of the whole Bible. Everything in the rest of the Bible flows out of this, this little uh, speech that God makes to Abram. And it gets elaborated and, and so on. So Isaiah, remember we saw this is a big idea, uh, idea and a big deal to Isaiah. Because Isaiah, for Isaiah, he's focused in on what's happening with Jerusalem. But as we saw like in chapter 2, everything in the bigger picture has to do with the nations being saved and blessed and redeemed and so on. That's the, that's the bigger picture. So he's 
calling into the logic of Abram. But there's no conditions here. It's just God's promise. The next one was uh, Exodus 19. And the key verses were in verses 4 through 6. He's brought the people out of Egypt, and he says, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will obey my voice and keep my covenant, you'll be my treasured possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you will be to me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. These are the words you speak to the people of Israel. So this is tricky, and we explore this a little bit. Now Israel's obedience has a role to play in God's promises somehow coming to fulfillment. So he's called the people who are going to be the vehicle, the priests who will mediate God's blessing and character to all of the nations. And so we think, oh, what a great idea. You know, like he's going to use a human family to bring blessing to all of the other human families. But then we stop and think, oh, that's a really horrible idea. Because <laughs> these are broken humans who are going to somehow be the vehicles of blessing to other broken humans. Like, how's that going to work out? And so that's the tension of the whole Old Testament story is why did he choose these people and they don't do a very good job of being bearers of this promise. So who's going to stand in for the people of Israel? We need somebody to stand in for all of humanity because we're all hopelessly lost. So he chooses Israel and now Israel needs somebody to stand in for them. You know, See what I'm saying here? This is the tension of the whole Old Testament story. Who's going to represent and obey on behalf of Israel if Israel can't obey for themselves? And if humanity, if we can't obey, you see what I'm saying here? This is what the story is building us up for here. Okay, so then comes along uh, the promise to David. And David, uh, it's a really long passage, so we won't read it this time. But uh, it was a promise to David about, about what? Anybody? This was seven days ago. So. What's that? So in, in Er, a descendant who's going to come. So David wants to build God a house, a temple. And God says, mm, not so much. You know, I'm really fine in my tent. It's okay. Uh, I'm going to build you a house, a, a dynasty, a line of kings who will come, who will come from you. And this uh, king becomes the inheritor of the promises to Abraham. Remember, in Second Samuel 7, a whole bunch of key words and phrases from Genesis 12 get picked up. And the king who's going to come from David is now going to be the one to carry these promises. And so we have, really, in my mind, this is the message of the whole Old Testament story wrapped up in these covenants. God wants to bless all nations through this family. He chooses Israel to be the bearers of the promise, but they don't obey. And so the king who's going to come and rule God's people will represent Israel to the nations and do the job that they can't do for themselves. And then how does the story of the Old Testament uh, end, for the most part? This is, uh, uh, it ends... It ends uh, with the people not being able to obey, and the king never comes. The messianic king never comes. Uh, and they go into exile. And then they come back from exile, and still the messianic king never comes. And then you finish reading the Old Testament. <laughs> and you're like, well, oh, all right. <laughs> so I guess I wait or something. I, I, well, for us, we just turn the page. <laughs> right? But, uh, but that's, that's the tension. So there you go. This is this Old Testament from 30... 30,000 feet. And so Isaiah comes in uh, right in this season here, you'll recall, uh, before the northern kingdom. Israel had a civil war. They split between the north and the south. And he comes on the scene 
right as things are crashing down to their final kind of curtain call in uh, the destruction of the North and the destruction of the South. So, okay, so there you go. That's a big picture there. But I hope that's helpful. We took like two hours to do that last week, I think, or an hour and a half. So we just did that in a couple minutes. Um, so uh, here's kind of where Isaiah fit into it. And I'll just by way of uh, summarizing here. So we looked at Isaiah 1 and 2, and here, and we just read a section of Isaiah, and so we have these, uh, how's uh, Jerusalem, Israel, Zion, how are they doing as bearers of the covenant promise and obeying Yahweh? So yeah, they're not doing very good. So uh, Israel rebels, Uh, there's injustice uh, to the poor, which in the Old Testament, if the orphan and the widow uh, are being neglected. That's a sign because those are precisely the most vulnerable people in, in the structure of their society. So if they're falling through the cracks and are being neglected, that's a sign that everything in the structure of how God wanted things to work for them in their communities, that everything else has gone awry too. It's kind of like the litmus test. How are the poorest of the poor treated in your community? That's the litmus test for how justice and righteousness is actually working out in your communities. It's a very powerful principle. It's all over the Old Testament. Uh, a relevant one for today, I might add. But this isn't a class exploring social justice in the Old Testament. Though that would be a good class too, wouldn't it? So anyway. <clears throat> so uh, Israel rebels, injustice to the poor, uh, hypocritical worship. Right? And so um, actually, if we're still open to Isaiah chapter 1, Verses 19 and 20 uh, basically gave the ultimatum. If you are willing, uh, this is verse 19 of chapter 1. If you are willing and obedient, you will eat from the best of the land. But if you resist and rebel, you'll be devoured by the sword. The mouth of Yahweh has spoken. Done. So there you go. Um, And so uh, we kind of know how the story is going to end then. Israel rebels, injustice, and so on. So what do they have coming to them? Actually, not the hammer. What does he say? (laughs) The sword. The sword is coming. So we could just call this judgment. But then you'll recall in chapter 1, at the ending of chapter 1, what does Isaiah see coming? Hmm. Say it this way. If judgment is the end of the story for Isaiah... Can Isaiah believe that God has been faithful to his promises if judgment is the end of the story? If that makes sense. Think about the covenant promises. Are any of the covenant promises, the end of the game is to just judge all the wicked, and that's it? <laughs> no, it's always working towards a redemptive purpose of restoration or blessing or salvation. And so for Isaiah, the logic of the covenant and of God's character is that if the sword is coming which it has to because God's a holy God uh, and he's in a covenant relationship with Israel, then what has to happen on the other side for God's promises and character to prove true? There has to be hope and restoration. And so we saw that in Genesis, in Genesis, in Isaiah 1, where he talks about Jerusalem uh, was once like a faithful wife, but has now had gone had all these adulterous relationships There's injustice. But at the end, he says, I'm going to restore you after the judgment. And uh, remember in chapter 1, he said uh, the judgment is going to be like melting down metal 
and pulling out all of the impurities in the molten metal and then purifying you. So the, jud- the goal of the judgment is, is purification. And then the ultimate goal after that is restoration uh, for Israel and Jerusalem. Okay. And then do you recall, just look at chapter 2 with me. And uh, if you were here, this is such an epic passage. Um, what's the focus of just the first uh, four verses of chapter 2? He sees another vision of restoration here. But is it just for Israel? Who's, yeah, who's the focus of those first verses of chapter 2? So all nations. So restoration for all nations. So again, you can see almost all the covenants coming into play here. This is the, the all nations piece comes from Genesis chapter 12. The judgment uh, that Israel's accountable to listen and obey, and they don't, so uh, they uh, get, get the sword. So what covenant, at least in chapters 1 and 2, doesn't seem to be represented yet? What promise? We've got Genesis 12, we've got Exodus 19. So yeah, where's the king, right? Where's the messianic king who's going to come uh, and bring this restoration for Israel and for all nations? So it doesn't appear in chapters 1 and 2. Although, where did David set up his kingdom? In Jerusalem. Where is the, the, the Davidic dynasty, what city is it connected to? Jerusalem. What is the city that is somehow at the center of all nations experiencing the blessing in, at the beginning of chapter 2? So Jerusalem, Zion. So whatever is happening here, restoration for all nations is coming through, we'll just say through Zion or Jerusalem. Something is going to happen so that Yahweh's teaching and justice go out to all nations. Something's going to happen in Jerusalem. So there you go. So my basic point, and again, I'm just kind of getting us back in, we've all had busy weeks or whatever, I'm just getting us back into the world of Isaiah for a few minutes here. So... uh, this is, in my mind, this is a way of summarizing the whole book of Isaiah right here. Uh, and so, I mentioned this last week, but uh, a helpful metaphor for me uh, in thinking about Isaiah has been uh, what I would call uh, flower, flower pot theology. So, this is my imitation of a flower pot. How's that? Yeah? Oh, I need that kind of interrupt. Um, so let's say uh, that uh, this rep- the soil down here, actually, here's what I'd say, is the covenant passages that we just read are like the soil down here. And then Isaiah chapters 1 and 2 come up, and they're like a little bit of growth out of that soil. Because everything in Isaiah 1 and 2 and all those themes that we see right there, those wouldn't make any sense to you if you didn't know the story of the covenant, Right? So what Isaiah is saying, he just presumes you know about Abraham, David, Messiah, and Mount Sinai, Exodus 19, and so on. And so everything he's saying presumes that storyline. And so he says, okay, God's going to bring judgment to Israel uh, because of their disobedience, but there's going to be restoration coming out, coming out the other side. And it's a broad, a very broad, grand picture he paints in these first two chapters. 
And so, essentially, uh, how I would describe the rest of the book of Isaiah, which is long and complex and, and so on, and beautiful, is that it's, uh, it's just growing each of these themes out into some marvelous plant. And then each of them is going to come to its own, uh, its own little flower right here. Okay, so this might seem a little silly and ridiculous to you. But, uh, so for example, I ask you the question, where's the Messiah in chapters 1 or 2? Where's the promise to David? There's no king, it's just something's going to happen in Jerusalem. And so one huge theme, as you read through the book of Isaiah, is going to be the growing and the development of the promise to David and the Messiah theme. And so it comes to its full fruition, uh, in, in we're going to get to like chapters 9 and 11, and then later on in chapters 42 and so on, in the servant chapters, and then the king is also called a servant, and then there's another uh, thing that's going to come to fruition here, and they're all connected. So another one was, uh, how are the people's sins going to be made white as snow? <laughs> How's that going to happen? You know, so I thought that happens in the temple and through the sacrifices. But as, as Israel goes into exile, the temple is going to be burned and destroyed. So how, how is God going to provide atonement for the sins of his people if there's no... And so that whole theme is going to work itself out, too, throughout the rest of the book until you find out that it's the Davidic king who is the servant who himself is going to bear the sins of the people into, him, into his own self. He's going to die as a, like a sacrifice. And you're like, whoa, didn't see that one coming. <laughs> so, but it all, it all grows out of uh, the, the original seedbed here. So in many ways, I think reading Isaiah, you have to have patience, which is in short supply for us as 21st century readers, right? We prefer, I don't know, we like reading short stories, whatever, we like watching sitcoms, that's what we want, you know what I mean? Right? So we want the plot wrapped up for us in 22 minutes with commercials, you know? Uh, and so that's, uh, that's not Isaiah, you have to be patient. And so uh, the Messiah theme, the atonement theme is going to come back out of this, the nation's theme. How are the nations going to be brought into the promise? That's a huge theme right up until the last chapters of the book. And so, for me, this is a helpful way to think about uh, what it's like to read the book of Isaiah. So as we go along, I'm going to be asking and, and having us read passages that are going to hit on the development of certain of these themes in Isaiah. And you watch them grow and grow and grow. And then I suppose you would say, uh, hmm, how did you get this metaphor? Then, like, they get transplanted into the New Testament, and then they continue to grow. How, how would I do that? That would be like a, a different pot. But I want to—I don't want to say the New Testament's a different pot. It's like the same pot, but it's... Uh... You guys see what I'm trying to do here? I've, I've never thought about how the New Testament fits into this here. So anyway, but you get the idea. Then they're going to get transplanted uh, into the new pot. Yeah, because once... Yeah, sure, this works. So once uh, Jesus, <laughs> so that's, that's Jesus the Messiah. Once Jesus comes along as the Messiah, uh, they take on a whole new level of growth and so on, and flower uh, in, in even more blossom or something like that. You get the idea. But that's uh, that's essentially uh, what's what's happening here. So you'll notice, and you may have noticed this last week. Uh, I've been hesitant at any point as we read through the book of Isaiah to go, "Oops, he, here's Jesus." <laughs> Because part of it is, is that uh, what's happening is, is that J 
Jesus doesn't come onto a blank slate. He walks into a storyline and into a flower pot that's already blossoming and blooming and so on. And he essentially is just self-identifying himself as the one in whom everything Isaiah was talking about is, is coming to pass. Right? We read that in Luke 4. And so um, people, in many ways, weren't blindsided by Jesus. What he was doing was applying things to himself and surprising new combinations that people hadn't thought of before. But everything he's appealing to is rooted, rooted there. Uh, okay, Th- thoughts or questions? We'll actually just dive into Isaiah now. But I just thought I'd get us all on the same page. How you guys doing? Thoughts or questions? Oh, sh- yeah, sure. I just, yeah, I just mentioned, I just mentioned a handful. So, like, yeah, so the destiny of the nations, you know, uh, the messianic theme, the atonement, how sins are going to be accomplished. Uh, but a big one for this is uh, how the historical events of Isaiah's day uh, fit into this scheme right here. And so how do the individual nations, like Assyria and Babylon, fit into this. So a big theme here is how God will use the pagan nations to accomplish his purposes. That's a whole theme in in the book of Isaiah as well that we're going to see. I'd have to think more. As we read Isaiah, maybe I'll try and point them out. Hey, look, this is another flower or something that's that's blossoming. Okay, so... There you go. So what we're going to do now is we're going to, uh, you'll recall one of the things I put on the plate is that reading Isaiah uh, is not just like uh, sitting uh, and listening to Isaiah on the street corner preach or something like that. Someone has very intentionally collected and preserved the poems of Isaiah, uh, or they're called oracles, uh, the poetic oracles of Isaiah, and has structured them for you. It's sort of like uh, someone has already sifted all through all of Isaiah's work and arranged it thematically and topically in a development of thought for you. And uh, so you need to pay attention not only to the words of the poems themselves, but also to how things are structured and put together. And so we kind of worked our way through. We were kind of in the middle of this big complex drawing right here <laughs> uh, in chapters uh, 5 through 12. That's kind of where, this is where we were. <clears throat> so one of my, uh, one of the things we were exploring is how this big section here, chapters 5 through 12, it's kind of one big complex amalgamation of material. And how there's one main collection of poems that all begin uh, with the words woe. Or alas? Who had alas in the translation? I liked that. Alas! Somebody did. Okay, great. Uh, so, uh, these, this is all one collection of material right here. And then in somebody, the, the author or compiler of the book, has cracked open those woe poems and has dropped right into there uh, a section of narrative and poetry in chapters 6 uh, through 9-7. Through and so here was essentially uh, this, this section here, is that uh, Israel's, I mean, we kind of already came across the theme already, uh, Israel's rebelling and full of injustice and so on. 
So the sword is coming. Whoa, 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 the sword is coming. That's essentially what this whole section was about. What uh, this section of narratives is trying to do is help us unpack what was happening in Isaiah's day and how the events of his day uh, relate to the big promises of Messiah and nations kind of coming to fruition. So we read chapter 6, and uh, the big picture of chapter 6 is God uh, appears to Isaiah in a vision, and Isaiah's response, is he happy? (laughs) Is God his buddy? (laughs) So, no, no, God appears uh, in holy splendor, and he's absolutely terrified for his life, uh, and rightfully so. Because he recognizes his moral, his moral ruin, uh, and how, what a screwed up person he is. And so God, remember, how does God heal Isaiah from his sin? Do you remember this in the in the vision? Yeah, the, there's a hot, burning coal that sears his lips. So this is not a fun experience. You know what I'm saying? Like this is not a pleasant image. But through this unpleasant experience of fire and burning, he's uh, look at verse. Uh, 7 God says see this has touched your lips your guilt is taken away your sin is atoned for so the atonement of sin is going to come through a painful experience of burning of judgment and then Isaiah sent and uh, you remember Isaiah's commission to the people what was his commission to the people you were summarizing here we read it slowly last week preach your message and revival's coming. No, actually just the opposite, right? So Israel has had 500 years of obstinate rebellion to Yahweh. And so, this is essentially Yahweh saying, okay, time's up. You know, we've reached the point of no return. And so now judgment is inevitable. Uh, Again, restoration out the other side, but the judgment, there's no turning back now. They've had 500 years of heading in this direction they're going to get what's coming to them. And so uh, Isaiah is going to go on talking about Isaiah, God's character and promises. But in verse 9, this is key. It's going to be really key, especially when we get into the, uh, the chapters of the 40s. He says, there Be ever hearing, but never understanding. Be ever seeing, but never perceiving. Make the heart of this people calloused. Make their ears dull and close their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. And so now Isaiah's words have the paradoxical role of actually hardening the people. And so it's the same idea, and you may have come across this in different people in your life, or maybe you uh, had a place in your life where you're like this, but it's about this is about the theology of hard hearts in the Bible, is that God will allow people to sink into their own depravity as a form of his own judgment. And so, whose judgment is it? God's or my heart becoming so hard, I'm not going to hear anybody trying to tell me <laughs> to repent anymore. I'm just turn it all away. And in, in, the Apostle Paul picks this up again in Romans chapter 1. And he said, God giving people over to the hardness of their heart is a form of his judgment. And so, Isaiah's words to repent and turn to him actually play the opposite role now of hardening of hardening the people. And Isaiah, in verse 11, rightfully so, says, hmm, this, like, what a raw deal for Isaiah. You know what I mean? So, wouldn't you much rather be like one of the prophets whom the people actually repented, you know, when they heard the message? So, 
you're being, your, your job description is to be rejected by the people. That's your role. So, and he's kind of like, that sucks. So how long, Lord? How long do I have to do that? Verse 11. And then here was the idea. Until cities lie ruined, without inhabitant, houses are left deserted, fields are ruined and ravaged, until the Lord sends everyone away and the land is forsaken. But there's going to be a little tent that remains in the land. And it'll be again laid waste. <laughs> You're like, oh, a little hope. And then no, then it again is laid waste. But just like a terebinth and an oak leaves a stump when it's cut down, there's going to be a little holy seed that's in the stump, in the stump, in the land. Do you see that there? So what are you left with? A little ray of hope here at the end of the sword coming through the land or the axe chopping it down. So, and I drew the little picture last week. It's just a little tiny growth out of the stump. And it's called the seed. And then we start thinking, now, oh, okay, hold on here. Who's the seed? Who's the seed? Is it a remnant, the people of Israel? Um, but remember what the king who was to come from the line of David, what was, what was that called in 2 Samuel 7? It was called the seed, the seed, or the Zerah in Hebrew. So he just leaves us hanging here, a little ray of hope here. That's chapter 6. So, all right, new territory. Chapter 7, shall we dive in to find the development of this promise? Okay. Who or what is the seed? <clears throat> when Ahaz, the son of Yotham, the son of Uzziah, was king in Judah, King Rezin of Aram and Pekah, son of Remaliah, king of Israel, marched up to fight against Jerusalem, but they couldn't overpower it. Okay, so just, again, I have, you have your historical timeline handout here. So the south and the north have had their civil war, and they've split apart. And here's what essentially is happening. The northern Israel is uh, reigned by a king. What's his name right here? Hmm. Ahaz is the king not of northern Israel, but of... Yeah, he's the king of southern Judah. Okay, so again, this is tricky here. We, we kind of, it was easy to get mixed up in the storyline of the Old Testament. So Israel splits in a civil war right after Solomon, and they become two separate kingdoms. David uh, and his line, and really it's sort of like Jerusalem is kind of the good guys. <laughs> uh, these guys down here, southern Judah. Northern Israel, they build their own temples to other gods, and they're just, they're like the black sheep or something like that. Pretty much through the whole, and then they get destroyed by Assyria and are wiped off the map of history forever. So that's kind of the, the, two, the two lines of Israel here. The, the problem is sometimes the word Israel refers just to the northern kingdom, and sometimes Israel refers to all of them together because they all came from the people of Israel. So sometimes it's kind of complicated here. So what he's saying here is, here's Ahaz. He's a, he's a descendant of David. He's a bearer of the promise to David. And he reigns down here in southern Judah. So that's Ahaz. And uh, Isaiah lives in Jerusalem with him. And then the king of northern Israel, what's his name here? Pekah, son of Ramalia. Mm -hmm. He teams up, this guy, Pekah, teams up with who to come uh, besiege Jerusalem? So that guy, uh, Rezin. Rezin. So he's the king of Aram. Aram is what we would call modern-day uh, uh, Syria, 
and Lebanon, essentially. So Damascus, which is in uh, Syria today, was the capital city of the ancient kingdom of Aram. So it is a civil war right here, isn't it? This is the tribes of Israel warring against the tribes of Judah. <clears throat> so here's what's going to happen here. Isaiah chapter 7 is one of our famous Christmas card passages <laughs> uh, for the Messiah. But all messianic prophecy in the Bible never just kind of comes down floating out of heaven. All of it arose out of the grit of Israel's complicated history. And so that's what we're going to see here. The origins of, the, or the continuation of the flower pot of the Messiah is going to take a huge, huge significant step forward here in the roots of the Civil War story right here. So let's keep reading. So the house of David was told, Aram has allied itself with Ephraim. Who's Ephraim? Yeah, it's complicated, I know, I'm sorry. So Ephraim is one of the tribes of northern Israel, the most powerful tribe. So it's a way of referring to northern, to northern Israel. Now, first just notice also something in chapter 2. Who, who's being told this right here? Who's being spoken to? Aram has allied itself with Ephraim. So who's that? Who's the house of David? So it's Ahaz, right? So Ahaz is the king who represents the house and the line of David right now. But why isn't he just called Ahaz? Like we just heard his name up in verse 1. So even the way he's being referred to right now is trying to get David and the promises to the house of David in your mind. So the, this is the author's way of saying, yes, of course it's Ahaz, but remember 2 Samuel chapter 7. That's what I want you to have in your mind, front and center right now as you read the story. It's the house of David that's at stake here. So the hearts of Ahaz and his people were shaken like the trees of the forest are shaken by a wind. What if that was like your legacy, you know? So there's not very much known about Ahaz except that he was a scaredy cat, you know? And that his, uh, his, he was shaken like trees of the forest are shaken by the wind. I think it's funny. I think it's supposed to be kind of a slam on Ahaz. <clears throat> Then the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out, you and your son Sha'ar Yashuv. I said a couple weeks ago that might top the name, the boy name list of all the boys being born here at Door of Hope. Sha'ar Yashuv. Does anyone have a, a footnote there? Translate. What's the translation? It's just Hebrew and English letters. What's the translation? A remnant will return. Okay, so again, think big picture Isaiah. He's going there with a kid who has a symbolic name, a remnant will return. So now what's on your mind? What are you thinking? You're thinking, okay, well, must be that judgment, the sword is coming, judgment's coming, but we have on our mind the restoration that's coming on the other side of judgment, a remnant who will uh, come out the other side. Somewhere. Uh, go meet Ahaz at the end of the aqueduct of the upper pool on the road to the washerman's field. You know that place. <laughs> so he's looking at an aqueduct. An aqueduct right now. His city is under siege. Why would he be like nosing around in the aqueducts? What's of short supply in a siege? Food and water. Right? So he's inspecting his water sources. That's essentially what he's doing. The city's under attack. 
first thing he's going to go do, how long do we have until we run out of water and food? That's essentially what he's doing. And so Isaiah says to him, be careful, keep calm, don't be afraid. Don't lose heart because of these two smoldering stubs of firewood, those guys, because of their fierce anger of uh, Rezin and Aram and the son of Ramalia. Aram, Ephraim, and Ramalia's son, they've plotted to your ruin, saying, let's invade Judah, let's tear it apart, let's divide it among ourselves, and let's make the son of Tav-el king over it. And with, this is kind of a wordplay too. Tav ale means no good. <laughs> uh, so it's kind of, kind of wondering, and there's no other reference anywhere to a guy named Tav ale anywhere in historical records or something. So many people think Isaiah's, this is a slam, or maybe it's a wordplay on his name. So we don't actually know what his name is, we just get the slur of what his name is, which is no good. <laughs> so, no good, over it. Yeah, this is what the Sovereign Lord says. It's not going to happen. It won't take place. For the head of Aram is Damascus, the capital city. Uh, And the head of Damascus is just this guy, Rezin. Who cares about him? He'll come and go. Within 65 years, Ephraim, the northern kingdom, up here, right here, will be shattered, too shattered to be a people. The head of Ephraim is Samaria, the capital city. The head of Samaria is Ramalia's only son. If you don't stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. Now look at that last line. It's very, it's kind of key, important. So is Isaiah's giving Ahaz good or bad news here? Yeah, this is good news. Who are these two guys? They're like little like fire sticks that you use to poke your fire with. Like they're not even flames; they're just smoldering sticks. Who cares about them? Uh, he says they're they're not going to be able to accomplish their purposes. But he does say to Ahaz the last line here: "You need to have faith in God's promises." or else you are not going to last. So it's kind of a haunting note. It's a promise, but then a haunting note. Let's keep reading. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, Ask the Lord your God for a sign, whether in the deepest depths or in the highest heights. So let's stop. Yeah, we'll stop for a second. We'll camp out on this. So Isaiah, on behalf of God, tells Ahaz, Ask for a sign. So, I don't. When you hear the English word "sign," what what comes to your mind? What are you thinking of? You're looking for a sign. So, so kind of a direction. So, what what do we mean when you say I'm asking for? You ask God for a sign. What does that mean? It's a good biblical image. Some kind of confirmation. So, should I marry this girl? Should I not? Lord, give me a sign. You know, whatever. And what would be the sign, you know? So, a famous one is like in the story of Gideon. And he does the whole thing with the rain and the dry of the fleece and so on. And so, he's asking God for a sign. So, oftentimes, in the biblical stories, God will give his people a sign. Some kind of uh, event that will be a confirmation of the promise that God just gave. God just made a, gave a promise. And he says, ask for a sign. God's inviting him. Like, ask for a sign so that you can be firm in your faith. He's just giving Ahaz everything on a silver platter here. Um, And what does, uh, what is Ahaz's response? (laughs) Very good. He says, no, no. Verse 12, no, I'm not going to ask for a sign. I'm not going to put the Lord to the test. 
So that sounds very, what is that, does that sound like good to you? Good, honest, religious man? I'm not going to test God. How dare I, you know? Uh, so it seems like he's being very pious right here. Uh, but he has an ace up his sleeve. And you're just supposed to know this because you are in Isaiah, so you've already read and immersed yourself in the book of Kings, right? <laughs> so again, you're just supposed to know this. So uh, this is interesting. <clears throat> so uh, let's see, Second Kings, oh, 18, oh, I think I meant 16. Yeah, sorry, 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 I meant 16. <clears throat> yeah, okay. All right. So this is in the book of Second Kings, which is retelling the same story. Look at verse 5. Rezin, king of Syria, Pekah, son of Ramalia, king of Israel, came up to wage war on Jerusalem. And you're like, wait, I read this already, didn't I? So this is the same story being told in the book of Kings. Uh, and it's minus some, um, some bits here. Look what Ahaz does, though. There's a little detail here. So he gets attacked by these guys coming from the north. So what does Ahaz do? Look at, uh, look at verse, this is the key thing, look at verse 7. So Ahaz sent messengers to some guy with a funny name, Tiglath Pileser, the king of, hmm, what? Syria. Now, Syria, good guys, bad guys. Yeah, they're bad guys. They're ruthless, ruthless imperial policies. They uproot peoples, deport them, burn their land, you know, to a crisp, bring a new people that they decimated their land somewhere else. They just mixed everybody up. Assyria is responsible for wiping most of the ancient people groups of the ancient areas just off the map of history, period. It's what they did to the northern tribes of Israel, too. So the bad guys. And so what does Ahaz do when these two little guys to the north come knocking at his door with, you know, bows and arrows? He goes to uh, the king of Assyria, saying, I am your servant and your son. Now think, Second Samuel 7, the king from the line of David is declared to be whose son? Do you remember that, 2 Samuel 7? God says, I will, to the line of kings coming from you, I will be a father and he will be my son. And so here's this faithless king from the line of David denying his sonship to Yahweh and saying, I'll become your son, king of Assyria. Come up and rescue me, rescue me from the hands of the king of Syria and from the hands of the king of Israel. They're attacking me. Ahaz took the silver and gold that was found in the house of the Lord. What's that? God's house? <laughs> so it's the temple. He, he loots the temple of all its silver and gold and the treasures in the king's house and sends a present to the king of Assyria. And the king of Assyria listened to him. The king of Assyria marched up against Damascus, took it down, and carried its people captive to Kir. Then he killed, he killed Rezin. Okay, so all of a sudden... When you read Isaiah chapter 7, verse 12, and he says, no, I won't ask. I don't want to test the Lord, you know. Do you see what's happening here? He's not, is he being honest? No, he's being deceptive. So the challenge of Isaiah was, your city's being attacked. Are you going to trust and have faith? Ask for a sign. And he says, oh, no, I don't need a sign to confirm my faith. I trust Yahweh. You know, see what I'm saying? It's a total scam right here. That's what he's doing. He's scamming Isaiah. He thinks he's scamming Isaiah. He's scamming Yahweh and so on. 
because he's got the ace up his sleeve. Well, I've already hired the Syria, so I don't really need help from Yahweh, do I? So, of course, God knows this already. So, uh, look at verse 13. Then Isaiah says, okay, now, hear this, you house of David. Is it not enough to try the patience of men? Are you going to try the patience of my God also? So, the game's up, right? Uh, Clearly, Isaiah and the prophet, they know what's going on here. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. So, he was given the opportunity to ask for a sign, and he refused it. Game's up. He's done his little scam. God knows about his scam. And so, okay, I'll give you a sign. You don't want a sign? I'll give you a sign. I kind of think of this as like, you know, when my dad used to say to me, like, I'll give you something to cry about. It's that kind of thing. It's sort of like, you don't, you're not going to ask for a sign? Or, oh, I see why you didn't ask for a sign. I'll give you a sign then. You know, that's the idea. So the sign is, was going to be good news for Ahaz. From, just from reading verse 13, do you get a feeling like the sign is good news anymore? No, it's going to be bad news for him. The Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will be with child or will become pregnant. And will give birth to a son, and will call his name hmm? Emmanuel. This is the Christmas card passage, right? He will eat curds and honey. When he knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right. But before the boy knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right, the land of the two kings that you dread will be laid waste. The Lord will bring on you and your people and on the house of your father a time unlike any since Ephraim broke away from Judah. He's going to bring the king of Assyria. Dun, 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 dun. Okay. So, here's, well, let me just ask you. How you guys doing? So this is the Christmas card passage. And you read the Christmas card passage and you're like, what does this have to do with Christmas? Right? <laughs> Did you guys get the feel of that here? Like, what on earth? This is all, this, whatever about the virgin being with child and giving birth to a son, it seems like it's entirely going to happen here within this time frame and this situation, right? So how does Matthew end up quoting this and saying, look, Jesus, <laughs> right? So it's a long-standing uh, tension and challenge uh, that uh, has challenged Christian interpreters of the Old Testament for a long, long time. And I'm going to solve it in four minutes or less. <laughs> no, I'm not. I'm not, I'm not going to solve it at all. Um, although I, it does fit into a larger, a larger picture of the book, book here. So, uh, if, so the re- qu- couple questions that come to your mind here. Who's the woman, right? So he just says there's a, there's a virgin. There's a young woman who's unmarried around. And we ask, who's that? Uh, and there's going to be a child born. Who's that? We don't know who that is. Um, and he is going to be given a symbolic name, though. And his name is Emmanuel, meaning God with us. Okay. Then there's this whole stuff about like his infant diet, right? <laughs> right? <laughs> so curds and honey, which is way taboo nowadays, right? So no honey for infants, right? It's to do with allergies and so on. At least some people think that. Sheesh. Yeah, you start talking about like, how to raise kids in a public setting and like you have four opinions for every three people in the room. <laughs> whatever, you know? So anyhow, so whatever. So he's eating curds and honey. Um, 
He'll eat curds and honey till he knows to reject the wrong and choose the right. So this is kind of a, a poetic way of, of saying, when do kids know how to discern from right from wrong? <laughs> well, that might be a debate too, actually. <laughs> Parents of the room. So kind of saying age of accountability and whatever that age, you know, uh, so roughly in kind of early adolescence or something where you can tr- truly say in a public setting that kid should have known he's now accountable for his actions, that kind of thing. So when he, when he starts to grow up. So it seems to be saying... There's a virgin who's going to have a child, call him Emmanuel, and by the time that he grows up, Assyria and the kings of the north, out of here, done, taken care of. Although Assyria, you kind of look, look at verse 17, uh, does it seem like he hired Assyria to, to hire the bad guys, but does it seem like a, this is good news that Assyria is going to be romping around his land, taking out bad guys? No, no. What's actually going to happen is the king of Assyria is going to come down and uh, kind of look around the kingdom of Judah and say, hey, this is some pretty nice land here. And they're actually going to totally attack and reduce Judah all the way down to nothing. That is the city of Jerusalem. Ahaz's plan backfires, you could say. Your plan's going to backfire. And so this, uh, this this is the origin of the Emmanuel prophecy right here. So the key questions is that as you finish reading the rest of the chapter, what you find is that, uh, well, so a couple of things going on here. First of all, and I'll, I'll uh, throw this up here. So we have, uh, so we're in Isaiah 7. So Ahaz, good guy or bad guy? He's bad guy. <laughs> Baddie guy. <laughs> bad guy. Okay. So uh, here's, here's the sign that's given to him then. There's going to be a, a virgin who's going to have a child. And uh, that child uh, is going to represent God's presence among his people. And then there's going to be judgment coming from Assyria. So whatever this child's coming means for Ahaz, is it good news or bad news? For Ahaz. Yeah, it's not good news. uh, Because he's a faithless king, and so it means somehow that God is bad, because of Ahaz's actions, judgment's coming, Assyria's coming, in a way that Ahaz never, never anticipated. But God is still going to be present with his people uh, somehow through this child who will be born. And the timing's a little hazy, and the identity of the child is like, who's this? I don't know. But somehow it's related to God's faithfulness and presence with the people and with the house of David, uh, despite everything that's going to happen. Okay, so this is all crystal clear, what's going on here, right? How you guys doing? Yeah? Okay, so... Uh, I said this last week, whenever you come to a place and you're like, okay, I think I'm kind of tracking a little bit, but I really don't get what's going on, what should you do next? Keep reading. Keep reading. <laughs> exactly, all right. So keep, let's, keep, let's keep reading. <clears throat> uh, go to chapter 8 with me. The Lord said to me, take a large scroll. Oh, who's talking to us now all of a sudden? The Lord said to me. Yeah, it's Isaiah. We're getting a little first-person story here. Take a large scroll and write on it with an ordinary pen, Maher Shalal Hashbaz. (laughs) 
And that's going to be the name of his other son. So, too bad for that kid. And you have a footnote. Uh, what's the meaning of his name? Yeah, it's a little poetic line. A little poetic line here. Yeah, quick to the plunder, swift to the spoil. I think the old King James uses the word booty here. <laughs> Which I, I love when the... The uh, New Revived Standards? Oh, the NAS. Here, let, I just like to see the word booty in the Bible. Isaiah 7, oh, excuse me, 8. Is it one or two? One. Oh, because I think they translate it. Yeah, swift is the booty. <laughs> it's great. So anyway, so booty, obviously, like pirate booty and so on. So plunder, plunder is the idea. So uh, swift is uh, the plunder, swift to the spoil, that kind of thing. So, oh, what is... Think about his, that name in this context here. Who's going to be swiftly plundered and destroyed here in this context here? Everton and I are not quite sure because we know the kingdom of Judah is going to get theirs from the king of Assyria, but for sure the two guys to the north that attacked, attacked him. Um, and I will call in Uriah the priest and Zechariah the son of Yeberachiah, great another great boy name, as reliable witnesses to me. Then I went to the prophetess, his wife. She conceived and gave birth to a son. And the Lord said to me, Name him Maher Shalal Hashbaz. For before the boy knows how to say, Father or mother, the wealth of Damascus, the plunder of Assyria, will be carried off by the king of Assyria. The plunder of Samaria will be carried off by the king of Assyria. So what's happening here now? Same time frame here. Isaiah himself is going to have a kid. The two northern kings that are attacking him taken taken out. By whom? Assyria. Assyria. Okay. The Lord spoke to me again. So let's just pause and go here. This is not simple, is it? Any of this. So, so cookies are on the bottom shelf or on the top shelf here? In terms of like ease of being able to reach them. Sorry, that's I sorry. That's I'd explain my metaphor. So again, is reading Isaiah simple? It's not simple. So are you supposed to just read Isaiah the first time and expect that you get everything? So this is what we talked about last week. These texts are meant to be read and reread and reread and pondered and read with others. And you go ask ask people what you think it means and you talk about them. These texts are designed to bring a community around reading and reading and rereading and so on. So, if this is, seems weird and obscure to you, that's because it is. <laughs> so, but that's, and that's okay. That's all right. That's, uh, I don't know. I don't know what else to say other than it's the Bible. So, and that's, that's why we have each other. Okay. That's why we do things like this. Here we, here we go. All right. Verse, I'm just trying to encourage you because I know this is complex. Verse 5. The Lord spoke to me again. Because this people has rejected the gently flowing waters of Shiloh and rejoices over Rezin and the son of Ramalia. Therefore, the Lord is going to bring against them the mighty floodwaters of the river, the king of Assyria with all his pomp. Such a great word. So uh, there's actually some obscure stuff going on, verses 6 and 7, but essentially what's happening is king of Assyria is going to come in and take out these two northern kings. 
But look what's going to happen with Assyria. Is he just going to stay in his, say like Assyria is like a river. He's going to stay in and go exactly where Ahaz wants him to because he just hired him to come take out a few of his enemies. No, Assyria is going to come in and is going to overflow its channels. It's going to run over all the banks. It's going to sweep on into, into where? Do you think Ahaz had this in mind? No, Ahaz wanted Assyria just to come, like, be nice, like a little do- attack dog or something to take out his enemies. And he's saying, no, the attack dog is now going to come attack you. You had no idea what you were getting into. It's going to sweep on into Judah and swirl over it, passing through Judah, reaching up to the neck. It's like Assyria is going to be a flood and reaches up to the neck. All that's left of Judah is the neck. And what's the main capital city of Judah? Jerusalem. Jerusalem. It's going to... Oh, it'll pass through, reaching up to its neck. Its outspread wings, Assyria's outspread wings, will cover the breadth of your land. Oh, hmm? Whoa, what? (laughs) Whoa. Emmanuel keeps popping up, but in the weirdest places, right? So here's the Emmanuel child again. Somehow, out of the grit and the crisis of this situation, there's this promise of a child uh, who's going to... uh, who's going to somehow be connected to just the, the neck, the small neck that's left of Judah, staying, keeping its head above water, keeping the house of David alive uh, and surviving amidst this judgment. This is a similar judgment to the stump in the tree. Assyria is going to come through and knock everything out, and there's just going to be like a little stump left and a little root growing, and that's all that's left. This is now a flood metaphor. A flood's coming through, And the Emmanuel child is connected with the survival of this small little remnant that's going to come out the other side of Assyria. Raise the war cry, you you nations. Be shattered. Listen, all you distant lands. Prepare for battle, but be shattered. Prepare for battle, but be shattered. Devise your strategy, but it will be thwarted. Propose your plan, but it will not stand. For, and then our translations might here. God is with us. Can you, you know the Hebrew here. Look at Hebrew scholars. What do you think the word is right there? Emmanuel. It's the Hebrew word Emmanuel. So somehow this is a weird, crazy poem. Verses 9 and 10 just come out of nowhere. And it's, uh, apparently what's going to happen is Assyria is going to come through the land. It's going to try to take out Judah. It's going to overflow the land up to the neck you know, in theory, in an effort to swallow up and conquer all of them. But who is there protecting the promise of God's promise to David so that even the plans of the nations will be shattered and God's purposes for David will not be thwarted? Who's there? Emmanuel. So who's who's Emmanuel? (laughs) This is so bizarre. This is so weird. Who's Emmanuel? Let's keep keep reading. Okay. Uh, here we go. We'll come back to what's going on in chapter 8. Uh, go to chapter 9 with me. <clears throat> Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. So what Isaiah is referring to is these territories up here. The tribes of Israel that inherited these lands of Zebulun and Naphtali were up here around the Sea of Galilee. Here's the Jordan River down here. Here's the Dead Sea. 
and Jerusalem is up in the hills right around here. So he's saying uh, there was a humbling and a gloom and distress for these tribes of Israel up here. And again, since you've read the book of Kings and internalized all its historical details, uh, you know that that's where the king of Assyria went first. And he just completely uh, erased all those tribes right off the map. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he's going to honor this same region, Galilee of the Gentiles, by the way of the sea along the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. So we'll we'll stop and reflect here for a second. But you remember what we talked about last week, about you're reading Isaiah, and it's sort of like, uh, it's like watching a kaleidoscope or something. It's like judgment, salvation, Messiah, the nations, it's here. You know, it just comes flying at you. And part of what you're supposed to do is, uh, is just look at the big picture and try and internalize the themes and the images and how things fit, fit together here. We talked about like a cubist painting. It's looking at one object, but from ten different angles at the same time, you know? And so it looks bizarre and confusing. So what happened here is somehow we fast forward in time. So after the king of Assyria coming and, and taking out uh, a whole bunch of the northern tribes here, And God says, in the past, this was his purpose, to bring judgment, to bring the sword for these folks up here. But in the future, what's he going to do for the same region that was taken out by Assyria? He's going to honor the same region up here. He's going to restore its honor or glory. The people walking in darkness, who were taken out by the king of Assyria, there's darkness here, but in the future, to this same region, there's going to come a bright light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you like people rejoicing at the harvest, like men rejoice when they divide the booty (laughs) or uh, or the plunder. So there's a time of joy coming that's like what? These are great poetic images here. Like harvest time. Does anybody have vegetables growing in your garden? Yeah, so it's a good time to go get your tomatoes, you know? And you're like, yes, you know, the fruit of my yard, whatever. To go gather your eggs, right? Urban chicken farmers, you. And uh, so, you know, whatever. So he's talking, there's the joy at the harvest time. There's joy, like when men divide up pirates, dividing the booty, you know, kind of thing. So there's joy coming. For like in the day of Midian's defeat, you... He seems to be addressing God. You have shattered the yoke that burdens them, people of Israel, like a bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Whoever the bad guy is, who's brought the darkness and gloom, what is God going to do to the bad guys? He's going to free them. It's going to be like, he's going to be like uh, they were in chains, or the idea of a yoke, this is the idea of a big, heavy, uh, wooden or, or wooden encased with metal, you know, a yoke that you put over an ox. 
Did anybody grow up on a farm? I sure didn't. <laughs> so, you know, I had to learn all of this stuff as I read the Bible. I was like, I don't know what yolk is, you know? I think of yolk as like what's in an egg or something. Oh, no, that's spelled different. So I have no idea what yolk is, you know? So it's a thing you put on a cow to lead it and so on. It's a, it's a symbol of uh, the cows under your power doing work for you. And so a yoke, humans being under a yoke then became an image of slavery. And so it's like uh, Israel was enslaved where there is a bar, they're carrying loads across their shoulder, the rod of their oppressor beating this, all images to somebody who is oppressing God's people. And what's God going to do to all of these symbols and accoutrements of slavery on the people? Shatter them, destroy them, to, to free them. Every warrior's boot that is used in battle Every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will become fuel for the fire. The tools of war be burned up. And then another Christmas passage. (laughs) For to us a child is born. Now wait a minute, hold on. Child being born, where have I heard about this before? Yeah, we hear about a child being born in chapter 7. A child connected to, somehow, the survival in the future of the house of David, but also judgment on Ahaz in the present generation of David. A child is born. To us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. He will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. That's interesting. <laughs> so what is the child? one of the child's names? Yeah, my, Mighty God. Whoa, what? Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and how long? Forever. Who's going to accomplish this? Yahweh Almighty, but who in particular? What, what character, feature of Yahweh? Characteristic. His zeal, his passion for his promises. Okay, there you go. How many of you feel the same way about this as you did about chapter 7? You're like, I love the Christmas card passage, but then I read it in context, and you're like, oh, it kind of ruins it for you or something. You're like, what? What does that have to do? So this is very strange. Okay, so let me... Uh, this was all on purpose that we spent that time engraved in the details right there. Um... So a helpful uh, metaphor, different than the, the flower pot metaphor for how to read uh, Isaiah, but all of the prophets, at least for me, uh, is to think about uh, Isaiah. So let's picture him here. Can you all see? I know the pole is kind of in the way. Uh, so let's picture Isaiah. Um, he should have a beard. He's a Bible character. Okay. <laughs> So, as Isaiah, he's sitting here in like, you know, 740 B.C., something like that. And he's looking out, uh, let's say he's looking out onto the historical scene. And a helpful metaphor I have found is to think about uh, him looking out into like a hillside. And then uh, there's some kind of mountains in the immediate foreground here. And then beyond that are even bigger mountains, and even bigger mountains, and so on. 
Now, as he looks at uh, the hills here, he can for sure see some things are right here in the foreground. So what are some of the things that are right here in the historical foreground of the chapters that we just read? So we know, so there's the stuff about Israel, northern Israel, and Aram, the kingdom of Aram. We know there's stuff about Assyria coming, and Assyria is bringing sword. Assyria is going to be the tool of Yahweh to bring judgment and so on. Um, but then, after Assyria brings judgment, we have this promise of a child being born, right? And the child being born, uh, according to chapter 9, like, what's this child going to bring? Happy times? Yeah, good, good times, whatever. You know, justice, righteousness, an eternal kingdom. Uh, he's going to defeat uh, uh, the wicked, and so on. And so we have this promise of... Uh, I mean, he comes from the line of David, uh, which is the anointed line, so we have the promise of the Messiah. So as you're reading the book of Isaiah, do you notice, like, the images and the poetry, it's all kind of collected and squished together. And you're just like, whoa, this, and then that, and this, and it's all together. Um, and maybe you can see where I'm going with the, with the metaphor here. So as you read the book of Isaiah, all of it's mixed together. But let's say you were to take this very picture and turn it sideways, right? And so, on the uh, immediate foreground, you have Israel and Iran. But uh, I don't know, how many of you have ever looked at like a mountain vista like this? And it's tricky. You know how your depth perception is just horrible when you're looking at a scene like this? Because you're like, is that 10 miles or 50 miles between these two? I, you know what I mean? Like, you'd really... It's almost impossible to judge, at least by our own eyesight. Or maybe you have lots of experience hiking, so you know, just by looking at it, whatever. But most of us don't. And so, uh, we have a hard time judging how all of these events relate to each other in terms of distance. And so, uh, some things that might seem like they're in the immediate foreground, so like, these two kings are going to be taken out by Assyria. But then we have like this promise of a little kid being born. You know, the Messiah. And it seems, for all intents and purposes, that uh, that also belongs to this same time frame here, you know? But what's tricky about uh, this kid being born is you read these chapters, and there's no mention ever of this person or this kid being born or the virgin being pregnant. There's nothing about it anywhere in these. As you read the book of Kings, you won't find that being referred to anywhere here. It's almost like the promise was made in this context but it never came to fulfillment or any sort of historical fruition right here. And so uh, the promise must somehow be related to a much more distant time frame. And the book of Isaiah is not trying to tell you like how many years lay between these two events right here. It's just giving you this poetic uh, amalgamation of the whole of the whole scheme. So that's, uh, that's about the best I can do. <laughs> so I've been wrestling with the book of Isaiah for years now, and uh, this is about the best that I can do. Because, look at chapter 11. <clears throat> or rather, we'll see another, uh, see another image of this here. <clears throat> look at uh, the end of, of chapter 10. Look at verse 33 of chapter 10. <clears throat> Look, 
the Lord, the Lord Almighty, is lopping off bows or boughs. You say boughs? It's tree branch, big tree branches. Boughs? Boughs. Hmm? Lopping off boughs with great power. The lofty trees will be felled. The tall ones will be brought low. Does that ring a bell? Anybody from last week? There's a whole poem about the high things, proud, being brought low on the day of the Lord. Remember what chapter that was? It was chapter 2. The whole poem is about this idea right here. He will cut down the forest thickets with an axe in Lebanon, which is had, in the ancient world had the tallest, most beautiful trees in the world, uh, will fall before the mighty one. So again, and you, you read all of chapter 10, and he's referring to Assyria coming through and just wiping out even Judah now. Even Ahaz didn't want this, but this is the ace up his sleeve turned up out to be a bad card or something. And Assyria comes through and, and wipes out his land. And so the whole land is like a, a forest that's been clear-cut and just full of stumps, essentially. Do you see this here? But then look at chapter 11. A sh- little shoot is going to pop up from the stump of who? We read this last week. Jesse. Who's Jesse? David's father. So it's as if saying that the line of David uh, is not going to end here when Assyria comes through the land. Somewhere out there, the line from David is going to sprout again. And his roots, and from his roots, a branch will bear fruit. I've heard about a branch before, related to the other side of judgment in the restored Jerusalem and so on. Where did we hear about the branch? From last week. So that was chapter 4, right? That was chapter 4. <clears throat> and so obviously this is a metaphor. This guy, this is a king coming from the line of, of David here. What else is going to characterize this king? This is going to be important for the rest of the book. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and of understanding. The spirit of counsel and of power. The spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. He will delight in the fear of the Lord. This is a good guy. He's a really, really good guy. <clears throat> this is precisely what the people of Israel need. is a spirit-empowered leader. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes. He will, or decide by what he hears with his ears, with righteousness he will judge the needy, with justice he'll give decisions for the poor of the earth. Okay, now, so stop right here. What does that first little bit mean? He won't judge by what he sees or decide with what he hears. What do you think it's getting at here? It's a good po- poetic image. He's going to bring justice, um, but he's going to have a level of discernment have you ever been around people who just have discernment? You know, and they can walk into a room and they're like, oh, I, I don't my wife does this all the time. Like, we'll be in a room somewhere and then we'll walk out and she was like, oh, those two people were totally at war with each other. You know? And I'm like, really? I didn't even notice. You know? Or, you know what I'm saying? So like, how did you know that? Like, I would never know that by spending 10 minutes in the room. Like, and she can just read people's vibes and read the room or whatever. She just has that. That's kind of what's going on here. He's going to be a ruler who doesn't like He's not easily tricked or whatever. He can see right through people. And he doesn't just, uh, he doesn't judge people based on appearances. He can see into the heart of situations or whatever. Brilliant, brilliant. And totally Jesus, right? I mean, come on. Anyway, 
right. <clears throat> so with righteousness, he'll judge the needy with justice, give decisions for the poor. And we're thinking in Isaiah's, remember in Isaiah 1, what were the signs of the crumbling of Israel's communities being communities of justice and equality and so on? It was the, it was the fate of the poor. And so the first thing this guy moves towards is to create uh, safety and justice for the poor, because in Israel that was the sign of them having a community of justice and righteousness. Uh, what else is he going to do with, uh, <laughs> with, his, with his gifts and power? He's going he's to save those who are vulnerable, and what's he going to do to the bad guys? He's going to strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt, and faithfulness a sash around his waist is sort of like the armor that he puts on is symbolic of the character traits, divine character traits that he has. Is that ringing any bells? Anybody? Anybody? When I was a little kid, um, I was in the skit. I hated being in church skits, uh, but when I was like eight or something, and uh, it was a whole thing about the armor of the Lord. It was me and like four other kids I didn't like or whatever from Sunday school or something. And so it was this little skit we did during a special music time during the service. And we had made all these cardboard things of the armor of God from Ephesians chapter 6, you know, and the breastplate and the sword of truth. And so Anyway, that's what I think of when I read this passage. So I think but when this guy shows up and does this, it won't be dorky, you know. It'll be the, the real thing. <clears throat> So righteousness will be his belt, faithfulness a sash around his waist. So this guy's coming. Good times coming? Good news? Yeah, this is great. It's great. It gets even better. The wolf will live with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf and the lion and the yearling, the, like the super young calf, they're going to like, uh, oh, wait, Oh, they're going to lie down together, as the verb carries from above. And a little child's going to lead them around. <laughs> this is great. So, I mean, this is poetry. It's poetry. So, what's the imagery here? Really think about this. Remember, you're supposed to slow down, take each image at a time, mull it over, meditate on it. So, what... Well, yeah, totally. What, what are you thinking? What does this image mean? I'm hearing all these little whispers. So, what do you think, Josh Carroll? Safety, yeah, right? What else? Peace, peace. So, so instead of, he could have just said, and there will be a time of peace. But instead, he thinks of the most vulnerable creatures on the planet, like a tiny little calf, and then the most violent, powerful creatures you could possibly imagine. Bears and lions and so on. And then little children. <laughs> and then he's saying somehow the coming of this king will be connected to a transformation of our world to the degree that what we think of safety and danger and so on, it's all turned upside down. And things are so safe that the most violent things are no longer a danger to you anymore. So again, this is poetry. It's poetry. But what he's getting at by his image is this king and his rule and his kingdom coming will involve a transformation of the world as we know it. An, an, an era of shalom. It's very powerful images. The cow will feed together with the bear, and their young are going to lie down and play together. The lion is going to become a vegetarian. <laughs> so he'd do great in Portland. So the lion will eat straw uh, like the ox. 
an infant's going to play near the hole of a cobra. He's really get, getting going with this, with this set of metaphors here, right? So again, so he's, pick, he's picked a metaphor that, to describe the transformation of the world when the Messiah's kingdom comes, and then he just runs into it, you know, just like, let's just take this metaphor all the way, you know? An infant will play near the hole of the cobra. A young child will put his hand into a viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain. Because the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord, like the waters cover the sea. Do you see how that last line kind of shifts things here? So what, what are we really getting at here? This transformation of creation is because an infusion of the knowledge of Yahweh. So what does that mean? Does that mean uh, everybody's going to have correct theology? And, the, <laughs> and that's the new heavens and the new earth. Everyone has correct theology, right? So is that what it means here? So what's, it's not just knowledge about the Lord. Knowledge in Hebrew, it's, it's this intimate experiential relationship with Yahweh. In he, the Hebrew idiom for a man has sex with a woman is a man knows a woman. So knowledge is about relational, intimate knowledge in these contexts. The earth will be permeated with an intimate knowledge of Yahweh, every creature, every, every human, and it will result in the transformation of, of the world. Look at verse 10. We'll, we'll wrap up the image here. In that day, the root of Jesse, who's that? So that's this branch coming from the line of David and Jesse here. He's going to stand like a banner for the peoples, and the nations are going to rally to him, and his place of rest will be glorious. Okay, so the root of Jesse, king from the line of David, he'll be like a banner for the peoples. The nations come streaming to him. Where have I heard about the nations streaming to the place where the Davidic king will reign one day? Where does, where does, the, where does the king reign? So he can reign, so at least traditionally, in Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Davidic king reigns in Jerusalem. And so... Uh, I already erased my flower pot, but did you, did you just watch a little sprout go up on the flower pot of the Messiah and the nations? Right? So in chapter 2, it was the nations will come to Jerusalem in era of peace. Remember in chapter 2, they take their spears and their swords and they melt them down and turn them into like, you know, hose and pitchforks and so on to work in their community gardens, you know? So it's an era of transformation and peace and so on. And so in the same image here, the Messiah comes, he brings justice and righteousness Creation is transformed into an era of peace. Everybody knows Yahweh, and everybody streams, all humanity streams to the king from the line of David. It's a cool passage, yeah? So there you go. Uh, so here, out here, we have Isaiah uh, chapter 7, 9, and 11 with these amazing passages of Messiah, but really, uh, it ends up pointing towards I would just call this the uh, new creation theme. Here's, this is another theme in Isaiah, in the flower pot here. That when the Messiah comes, the, the created order itself will experience a new birth and transformation. And as you're reading Isaiah, you just see all of this together in this, in this mountain range. Um, but in terms of historical distance, there's obviously a, a pretty large gap uh, between these events. Because uh, last I checked, um, I'm definitely not going to stick my hand in the hole of a cobra. 
you know. So and I don't think you are too. Uh, you are either. So anyway, okay, there you go. That was a whole movement. How, how you guys doing? Thoughts, questions? Yeah, I don't think that's the case. Um, yeah, so uh, one common line of interpretation of who's the Emmanuel child is that uh, it's Isaiah's wife. Um, and that the child, Emmanuel, was actually first is Isaiah's child, Maharshala Hashbaz. The problem is that uh, the, the woman in chapter 7 is called a virgin, an unmarried woman. And in chapter 7, Isaiah shows up with his first son named Sha'ar Yashuv. So he's already had a kid with his wife. And so that kind of takes his wife out of the running for, for being a... Yeah, so it's shrouded in mystery. Who is this unmarried woman who will give birth to Emmanuel? It's just put out there, and then it never comes up again. And then the next chapter 9, you're just like, and a child be born from the line of David in chapter 11, and new creation. And you're like, what? Where did all this come from? And somehow this promise gained steam. Uh, it was not fulfilled anywhere in Isaiah's day. And so the promise was just left hanging to get developed and kicked out into the future to be fulfilled in the, in the future, future day. So that's the best I can come up with. If you have another idea, let me know. <laughs> but that, other, other thoughts? Yeah. Well, just on thoughts and just being a mom, I just was thinking about how many people must have been so disappointed that wasn't their child. Like yeah, right. Hope that your your daughter would be one or, or something like that. Yeah. So actually, that raises that raises a good point in that uh, who actually knew about this promise? Who's there present in chapter seven? I mean, it's just Isaiah and King Ahaz. You know, uh, there's not. It's not. I don't necessarily think this was brought. This was broadcast to all of the people. So. Yeah. Why would they keep that to themselves? Like, look at this yeah. great thing that's coming. Yes. Actually, yeah, actually, yeah, for, yeah, for Ahaz, it was a sign of his, of his lack of faith. Actually, so go back to chapter 8 with me. What you're talking about raises a really, a really key uh, thing with chapter 8. <clears throat> and we'll move towards this and then take our, take our break. And we're drawing 1 through 12 uh, to a close here. But you remember in chapter 6, Isaiah was saying, you're being given a commission here. To, to speak that judgment's coming and that there'll be a little bit of hope coming out the other side, but only after there's a terrible judgment. Um, chapter 8, verse 11. The Lord spoke to me with his strong hand upon me, warning me not to follow the way of this people. So you could just summarize by saying, Isaiah and everything he represents, he's a minority. Most of the people have gone another way. They've gone astray. And so Isaiah, he's almost like the bearer of the promises right now. Um, we sometimes have the idea that, you know, I don't know, that uh, the Old Testament and just everybody in Israel had an idea of all this stuff about the Messiah or something like that. And it, it seems to me what, what's happening here is most of Israel has totally gone astray. They've just become like the Canaanites and are following after other gods. And it's a small minority of people who actually stayed faithful 
as bearers of the promises. And the Old Testament was written and collected by that small minority. The Old Testament is a minority view. You could have an Old Testament that comes from most of the other Israelites, and it would have a very different theology. <laughs> it would read like Canaanite theology or something like that. But So this, this is what's happening here. Isaiah is the, the lone prophet. Verse 12, do not call conspiracy everything that these people call a conspiracy. Don't fear what they fear. Don't dread what they dread. The Lord Almighty is the one that you are to regard as holy. He's the one you are to fear. He's the one you are to dread. It's Isaiah. He's this persecuted, small, religious, minority prophet. No one else believes what he believes. And he says, you hold on and you regard Yahweh as holy. And don't follow the way of everyone else. Verse 14. Yahweh, he will be like a sanctuary to you. So for Isaiah, as he tries to stay faithful, God's like a shelter, a sanctuary. But for the house of Israel, what will Yahweh be? Yeah, not so great. <laughs> a stone that causes men to stumble, a rock that makes them fall. And for the people of Jerusalem, a trap and a snare. Many will stumble, fall, be broken. They will be snared and captured. So what is Isaiah supposed to do? Isaiah... Uh, uh, Chapter 8, verses 16 and 17, what follows here, I think are some of the most important verses in the book of Isaiah for understanding how the book came into existence. Because what does God tell Isaiah? Bind up the testimony and seal up the law. Do you remember uh, the Hebrew word for law? Yeah, sorry, let me go down here. So this is uh, the, let's see, testimony is uh, the, Hebrew, uh, the Hebrew word teuda, and then the law uh, is the Hebrew word Torah. The teuda and the Torah. Bind up the Te'udah and the Torah among my, what? Disciples. So, this is Isaiah speaking. Bind up the testimony, seal up the Torah among my disciples, and I'm going to sit here and wait for the Lord, who's hiding his face from the house of Jacob, but I'm going to put my trust in him. It's such a cool line here. So what? He's been, he's been prophesying for some time. Nobody's listening to, to him. Everyone's rejecting him. And so what's he supposed to do with his message, his prophetic message, and all the poems that he's been writing and speaking and so on? What's he supposed to do? Look closer here. What's it say he's supposed to do? So bind them up and do what? Think, think of, yes, yeah, seal them. Okay, so he's not writing in a book. What's he writing in? <laughs> he's writing in a scroll. Right? So what does it mean to bind up and seal the scroll? Yeah, you're locking them. So he has this, this prophecy of judgment, but on the other side of the judgment is what? Promise. Messiah, new creation, and so on. But everyone's rejecting him. And so he's supposed to bind up all of his prophecies and pass them over to who? His disciples. Who's that? Yeah, who's that? 
So Isaiah has a little following of disciples. <laughs> so a little crew of prophetic disciples who are going to be the ones to treasure Isaiah's prophecies until the time of fulfillment comes to pass. And this is, this is how chapter 40 begins, by saying the time of Isaiah's, he prophesied judgment, and that time is now past. After judgment, Isaiah said what would follow? <laughs> this stuff right here. And so Isaiah 40 just comes right out of the gate and says, exile's over, time of judgment is past, now is the time where we're waiting for the fulfillment and the coming of the Messiah, and so on. Chapter 40, what, what chapter begins three out of the four Gospels in the New Testament? Isaiah chapter 40. And so this, uh, somehow we're getting a, a clue into the making of the book of Isaiah here. That Isaiah uh, uh, had a whole bunch of prophecies, and he just bound it all up and handed it over to a group of people. Uh, and he, he died waiting and trusting in Yahweh and never saw the fulfillment of any of these promises, except Assyria coming through and wiping, wiping everybody out. So here's, here's why I followed this, this line of, of thought here, is it seems to me that most people uh, were not listening to Isaiah, and that most people uh, probably didn't know about the Emmanuel promise of the child, uh, because they were rejecting his words. And so he bound up his prophecies and his promises, handed them over to the disciples, and, uh, and then he died. <laughs> you know, we don't know. Uh, we'll, when you get to 36 to 39, we'll see he had a little bit more of a role to play. But that's uh, the image here in Isaiah, in Isaiah 1 through 12. So let's kind of, we can kind of wrap this first section up here, um, except I'm now going to say chapters 1 through 12. And let's kind of paint a picture of everything that we've, that we've summarized here. So Israel rebels, injustice to the poor, Hypocritical worship. The sword is coming. Who's bringing the sword? Assyria. Yeah, Assyria is going to bring judgment. But remember, the judgment's a purification, or it's going to be like clear cutting a forest, but then what starts popping up out of the stumps, <laughs> right? Is little shoots. And one of those shoots is going to be the Messiah from the line of David. Um, so it's a judgment that uh, is aimed at restoration for Israel and Jerusalem, restoration for all nations. But now we finish chapters 1 through 12, and what other theme has come in full, into full fruition here in chapters 7, 9, and 11? The of the, um, yeah, the, right, so the Emmanuel prophecy. Um, uh, let's see, so we'll, we'll say the restoration of the line of David and the Messiah, uh, Emmanuel. And so we had restoration for Jerusalem, restoration, all nations are going to come to him. But then in chapter 11, this is not just about like, yay, a new president. You know, you know what I'm saying? Like you got the idea that somehow this coming of this ruler is connected with a restoration, not just of like, people and communities and so on, but of like creation, a renewal of creation itself. Um, and I've pondered in chapter 11, you know, why, how, why it is especially that images of snakes uh, get, get brought up here in verse 8, that snakes will become harmless. So yeah, yeah, exactly right. Think of, think of the Garden of Eden stories 
and you know the the whatever the serpent represents, right, or symbolizes, and so on. That's a whole issue discussion among itself. But uh, the serpent plays a key role in uh, in the downfall of humanity and in the ruin of humanity and creation. And so I've often wondered if it's not intentional that he uses the image of snakes becoming harmless here in a restoration of creation. And so this is kind of, here we go, this is the sweep of the storyline in Isaiah 1 through 12. Um, it's not simple. <laughs> it's actually pretty complex. Uh, but I don't know, it's art. Remember? <laughs> it's poetry. So it, you're not just meant to, to like, you know, walk through the art museum with a Snickers bar and, you know, give every picture a few munches and then go on. You know what I mean? You're supposed to sit in a chair and stare at the thing for hours, you know, and then come back another day and stare at it for another few hours. That's like the book of Isaiah. Uh, it's, a, it's a piece of art that you're supposed to stare at. Other thoughts or questions? Great. Well, that could mean a lot of things. <laughs> uh, it could mean that you're bored to death or that you're just, this is all really interesting. So I'll, I'll assume the latter. So uh, good. Well, this is kind of a natural point to take a break. Um, we're going to jump into the next big section and really uh, just touch down at some key points. We won't do it quite as thoroughly as we did 1 through 12. But... Um, what do you, I'm also thinking in the interest of time, like, would anybody be bummed if we said, let's try and be back by, like, 12.45, as opposed to 1, just so we can get a little more extra time? Is that okay? So shoot for, that gives us 50 minutes, 5-0. Oh, 12.45. All right, see you guys, see you guys here.